Okay. Today is August the 6th. We're almost starting on time, aren't we? Oh, well, we're late. So back to our tradition. Today is August the 16th, 2020. Lecture discussion number 113 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, upon occasion, I received unsolicited uh, constructive advice with respect to my approach. I refer to it as a Saxon math approach to Bible teaching. And uh, usually the recommendations begin with a polite question. Uh, when I get them along the lines of, uh, do you have any idea what you are doing? And I left out colorful adjectives and adverbs and nouns, you know, all of that. And, uh, and once I get that, I, I, that's succeeded by a pleasant uh, commentary. No one, they will tell me, can follow your convoluted, incongruent, chaotic, supposed method that is, except for Terry, apparently. Terithithi. I, I told you, I got a letter from somebody that spelled your name, Terithithi, correctly as I have made it up. So that's fantastic. Uh, but uh, in the beginning of my so-called career, Lori will tell you, we used to get, I used to get addressed to me uh, from religious institutions. They would regularly send me books. Uh, on how to preach effectively. And the, uh, the implication was obvious. It never came out and told me that this, but essentially the implication, the implied element here was, you stink, quit now. And they said, how many did we get? I used to, I could have made huge bonfires, heated half the neighborhood. And it's okay. I know, I understand that uh, my system is Distinct. How's that for euphemism? And I still get instructional uh, materials occasionally. Um, people who wish to um, impress upon me the correct doctrinal stance uh, is pretty relatively common. So they'll give me books and things. And I appreciate it. I really do because I, I see the other views and, uh, and I get to read what, uh, what is popular. And I need to know what is popular in order to weed out that which is also incorrect. So, in any event, there remains a contingent out there that is steadfast, uh, consistently unimpressed with my method. And it's encouraging a little bit, at least actually a lot, to, to note that they have not given up on me. So they're going to keep trying. Uh, they still have hope for my compliance, and, and so there's that. I got that going for me. And I mention this again because the Saxon mass system I'm not applying it to the Bible. I say that I am, but I know that I'm not. The, the inverse is actually the truth here. It's the case. In my opinion, Saxon math technique, as I've explained it before, and that's what I taught mostly in my mathematical teaching stint, it's designed to maintain and refer 
to at constant a return would be a better word to the first chapter the first set of problems is what it wants to do it's continually doing that as the students progress through the material as more information more complexity is added the foundation learned in the initial lesson is revealed to be present in all the subsequent calculations that is the saxon math system and I said last Sunday, I think I said it last Sunday, I cannot know, I don't know if I really did or not, I know it was a, a little bit ago, that it's impossible to get out of Genesis. I said, I can't get out of Genesis. And that's true, I can't. Genesis is in every single book of the Bible. Uh, just like the first set of problems that Saxon math has. So my point is... <laughs> Right off the bat here, page 2.25, two and a quarter, I have a point of some kind, is that uh, uh, it isn't Saxon math, it is the way the Bible is written. The Genesis everywhere in the Bible, just all you have to do is look for it. There's no place that this is more easily seen than in Revelation. Make the logical assumption. If it's in the last book of the Bible and it's in the first book of the Bible, there is likely an entire thread through the entirety of the Bible, a, a pathway, if you will. And M.R. Dahan wrote a book, Doctor, the, uh, the medical doctor, not the son, uh, wrote a book, Portraits of Christ, in Genesis, about 70 years ago, I think. Uh, a long time ago, for relatively speaking. Um, and that presented a, a few of the obvious types of Jesus Christ in the creation accounts. So did A.W. Uh, Pink do that, Ada Ruth Habershon, probably the one that had the most impact. And there are others, uh, Spurgeon did it, uh, uh, I can't even think of all the names of the people that I have read. I have very large books trying to find the portraits of Christ in Genesis. And so if I have portraits of Christ in Genesis, I'm going to have portraits of Christ in every single book, aren't I? That's just, again, how the system has been established, in my view. So there are others, as I want to point out, prior to Dahan, that established the principle that Jesus Christ was on every single page of the Bible. He is on every single page. And that is the first principle of Scripture. And that, that is that which identifies Scripture as Scripture. When you find him, you have found Scripture. Scripture must testify of Christ, Jesus Christ, 539 John. He is the pathway or the thread, whatever, the connective tissue, if you want to think of it that way. But I think of it this way. He is the lifeblood that flows throughout the Bible. If the lifeblood is not present, if you find a book, whether it's in the Apocrypha or if it's in some other odd thing, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, there was something on Adam and Eve, I don't remember which, what the name of it off the top of my head, or the book of Enoch. If you find something and there is no lifeblood that should flow through it, there's no Jesus Christ in it, if the lifeblood is not present, the flesh of what you're reading is not alive. And the flesh is not the living word that our Bible is. The Bible, our Bible, is alive. It's a living book. It says so. That which makes it alive is the blood, if you wish to think of it that way. The person of Jesus Christ. The life is of the Bible is in the blood, isn't it? Le Leviticus 17:11. And I, I used to announce periodically, whenever it was necessary, the list of recently accumulated subjects. In other words, I would just go over a review. 
and I would tell you what, where we have been, usually about every five to seven lectures. I stopped doing that. No reason that I stopped. I tried to think of the reason I stopped doing it. And I think it was just, what, what did you say? Yeah, because I, I don't know, maybe it's just agedness. I stopped doing it. Uh, could be that I, I recognized that by reviewing all the time, uh, I ended up with less and less material that I wanted to cover. And I feel a sense of urgency as the agedness seems to have no impediment. So I uh, am trying to get more information out, especially now that I don't really have a congregational audience that I, that I can bore and see the result of my boring them. So I'm, I'm able now to go with abandon all kinds of odd things for hours upon end. I had somebody tell me this week, well, at least you know you're doing that on purpose. Yes, I am. But my original intent when I did it was to remind of the path, the occurrences that I call traceable to the cause, because it's usually helpful in the teaching world to look back at the journey and remind everybody how we have gotten from one place to the next place, the anatomy of all of it. And it was particularly valuable to the HTRP because it brought me into focus. I was able to understand uh, better what I had left out and where I was going. I'm prone to being serpentine or serpentine, you pick. Um, in other words, I have debris-filled excursions. Uh, it's just part of my nature. And doing this, um, when I began to review everything, it provided a compass for not just the congregation or the listeners, but also for the HTRP lest the flare gun were to man, uh, malfunction and were way out into the forest in the dark. So that's what I was doing. I did it for uh, many, many years, and I stopped doing it. So I'm kind of doing it today. All of that to say, that's what I'm kind of doing. Not really, but kind of. Not like I used to, but nonetheless making an attempt. So today's question is not where are we now, which I ask a lot. It is also where did we come from? From where did we go? How did we start all of this? And as you might know, I'll throw a few things on here. I won't get it in absolute order. A while back, I mentioned horizontal asymptotes. Asymptotes. It's very hard for me to say because there's two T's in there. That was a June the 7th topic. And I brought that up because it provided a mathematical principle. And mathematics, as you might remember, as I've been saying, is dependent. It cannot be apart from consciousness. There's a dependency on consciousness that is in mathematics. Intelligence, a dependency on intelligence. Uh, and mathematics cannot predict free will. Remember me saying that? And mathematics is the language which explains the creation. I said all of those things here recently. I don't remember for sure which lectures, but recently. And it all began, began with horizontal asymptotes. And yes, I know I can't get that last T out. Asymptotes. I had to go to speech therapy as a child. I've said that many times. The man abused me. By that I mean he never let me win the game because I could never say Horizontal asymptotes when I was five. 
or other words that he would pick. He intentionally picked words that I could not say so that he could beat me at the game we were playing and make me cry. And for that, I learned a great deal and incorporated it into my system of teaching. So, all of that to say this. Last Sunday, if, if, would you understand that mathematics cannot predict free will, that mathematics is language, that mathematics depended on consciousness and intelligence, you have a therefore. And, and eventually I got to the therefore last week, which is August the 9th, for those keeping score. The opening issue last week was the delicacy of balance. I hope somebody remembers that. Revealed in Genesis, there is this delicacy. And the specific delicacy that I brought up is the omniscience and timelessness of the Lord God of creation positioned alongside the will and accountability of man and angels. I have to bring up the angels. So God has omniscience and he has timelessness. And you have to position that alongside of will and accountability of both man and angels. One could add in the will of animals because animals have will. I see it every day. I have two dogs and they are quite willful and emotional uh, and selfish. Violent occasionally with each other depending on the conditions. We had a dog that uh, loved her red chicken and we had another dog staying with us that took her red chicken. And violence broke out intensity. She wanted her red chicken back, and she wanted it now. A tremendous amount of will that you see when you are involved with animals. And as, but I'm not going to add in the will of animals as long as, the, as you know or that one knows that animals do not reject Jesus Christ. That's why they're not in this. Because we recognize that we have will. Most people do. Some do not. They say we do not. Will is an illusion. Time is an illusion. Consciousness is an illusion. Everything, there is no nothing real at all except for physical elements. It's the physicalist. But animals do have a will. And they, they, the Bible exposes that, Mark 1.13 and many other places. But I stated that many believe today, when I talk about many, I mean theologically. So this, this is out of the church. That there is no compatibility between human will and human accountability, which is judgment. In other words, there's no, I cannot reconcile will and judgment. There are many people in the church today that believe that's the case, that this is something that is never reconcilable. Probably because, and they might use horizontal asymptotes as on their position, but I actually believe that the, if they, they never reflected on horizontal asymptotes, are zero and infinity. Last week, Psalm 10.6. Actually, all of Psalms, but specifically Psalm 10.6. All of Psalms 10, sorry. They say, the wicked ones say, that they will never be in adversity or condemnation. So they will never be in judgment. They say that. It's easy to find them saying it. They say it all the time. There is no judgment. There's no salvation either. They will say there is no heaven. There is no hell. There is nothingness, purposelessness, hopelessness, and foolishness. There is no meaning to life at all. Everyone's a fool for thinking otherwise. That is what they teach in every university in this country and probably Europe. 
And when I say every, I mean all but one. Even the Christian schools are failing here. They have given themselves over to monism. But the wicked, Psalm 10:6, they say they will never be in adversity, which is condemnation. They will never stand before a judge and have that adversity. They say that God has forgotten their evil. I hope you remember that from Psalm 10. Can't read it all again today. Uh, go back and listen to it or read it yourself. They will say that he hides his face from heinous sinfulness, that he will never see. You will not require an account, they say, to his face. And that's the declaration of Satan to the face of God, literally, which is, as you know, Genesis 3, 4, and being explained at Psalm 10, 3 through 13. So Psalm 10, 3 through 13 explains what Satan is actually really saying at Genesis 3, 4. And it's important to understand that. Psalm 10 is the elucidation of Satan's lie at Genesis 3, 4 and Ezekiel 28, 16. You can throw in Isaiah 14 as well if you want. Satan said in his heart, I shall not be moved. And obviously God is insistent that there is no paradox with respect to his omniscience and his timelessness. Now today I wanted to finish off why he's also insistent on raising the body of the dead, saved and unsaved. Remember, this is in a courtroom setting, especially for the the, the, those who are laid, uh, the second death, those who are raised to the second death. So he is raising them because they are evidence of something. Your body provides evidence. And so begin to think about that. And that's all. So uh, I will. Uh, I can't. I don't have time to, to finish it today. But I just give you that piece of information. I've been getting people to ask me. Please solve this for me. And I will solve it for you, but I want you to wrestle with it, obviously. But again, God is insistent that there is no paradox with respect to his omniscience and timelessness and his judgment and our will. He makes that very clear. There's the great white throne judgment and accountability for the willful sinfulness, rejection of Jesus Christ. That, that is, that's the end of the Bible, if you wish. It's not quite, but it is. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is the obvious scripture that he is positive. God is not equivocating here with respect to the omniscience and timelessness that he possesses and our accountability for sin and the willful expression of those whom he created. Daniel 7 also to state another obvious scripture. But also in this debate, alongside this debate, is the theological implication of immune disease. Remember, I speak immune deficiency. Sorry, immune disease. There is an immune disease, and it's part of the immune defense gone awry. But I asked, why do we even have an immune defense? And also along with that is the origins of pathogens or viruses and parasites and bacteriological agents that are poisonous or that are infectious and uh, other substances that are poisonous and creatures that likewise are deadly uh, with some kind of toxicity. How did they originate? How did, where did they come in? How does this work? And some suggest that, uh, that these are contradictory or antinomic, if you wish. They cannot coincide with God's omniscience and timelessness.
So the debate expands. And I should probably explain that a little bit. Obviously, timelessness and omniscience are intertwined. What I'm saying is, you can't have omniscience without having timelessness, and you can't have timelessness without having omniscience. And the other omnis as well. I'll get to that in a minute. The creator, I'm just focusing on those two for today, because that's where the issue always seems to come up. It's not timelessness and omnipresence. It's not timelessness and omnipotence. It's not timelessness and omnibenevolence. It's always timelessness and omniscience that the argument is over. The creator of time, the institutor of time, the one who installs time, would have, wouldn't he logically, the one that creates time, if you will, the consciousness that develops time, even the concept of time, he would obviously have access to all of the time at the same time, if he so wishes. Which is why why a while back I raised the question of motion. Do you remember motion? A long time ago. But I said motion is an issue. I should, did I explain horizontal asymptote? It's a graph. It's an x and a y axis. And uh, y is equal to 1 over x as x approaches infinity. So if infinity was here, the closer that x gets to infinity, the closer y gets to the x-axis, or the zero-axis, if you will. But because infinity can never be, be reached, then y never becomes infinity. Or, I'm sorry, y never becomes zero. So I have this fantastic relationship between zero and infinity. And that's the principle of a horizontal asymptote. And I hope you understand. I should have explained that somewhere. Why didn't I? Did I skip a page? Doesn't appear that I do. I just want you to know that zero and infinity are mathematical principles that coexist. There is coexistence. Horizontal asymptotes uh, demonstrate this coexistence between things that um, do not seem to have a relationship. Again, it's y, y equals 1 over x and x increases to infinity. Y will never become zero. Never become zero. Because infinity cannot be reached. So there's, again, what seems like a dichotomy or a contradiction is really a relationship. So, timelessness and omniscience have a relationship as well. They're on the same side, if you wish to think of it that way. When he instituted time, obviously he would have access to all of it in order to institute it. And which is, again, why I raised the question of motion. Motion and time are coupled. Motion is subjected, is subordinate to time. But again, they also have a relationship much like zero and infinity. Jesus God, Acts 2.32. In your Bible, I hope it Acts, Acts 2.32. It actually says Jesus God, if you have a very good. It's one word. There is no hyphen. There is no comma. It is one word. Jesus God, Acts 2.32. Jesus God says he contains time. Time is in him, Revelation 1.8. 
117, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Time consists in him and he can see all of time without motion. So he can separate time from motion. If he so wills to do so. And note that disclaimer. God can exercise his will in both directions of this issue. Duh. He can see motion. He made, he set everything in motion. He can clearly witness motion. But he can also witness no motion. And he can stop both. And not stop, I guess, wouldn't be the right word. He could if he wished, but he doesn't. He has systems that he leaves pristine, if you will, unaffected. But he can clearly see all of time apart from motion. And, and, and I'll say that he can see all of motion apart from time. And some will argue with that, but I believe that's an accurate statement. Logically, the one who set the creation in motion is not subject to motion. And again, consider time and motion as a unity. I keep hoping that these relationships will show up here. Sameness, oneness. As united, if you want to think of it that way. Timelessness and motionlessness also have unity. So I have time and motion, but I also have timelessness and motionlessness. If you add lessness to something, you make it sound more impressive if you can say lessness without getting losing a card and losing the game. But they also are unity. So when there is no motion and there is no time, that is a united condition. So the timeless one begins time. He establishes time. Time has a direction. It is a vector. We're into vectors. Vectors are very cool. And eventually we'll begin to, I hope, understand the whole point today, yea, a whole point today, is that time has direction. And the fact that it has direction, it is not omnidirectional, means that it had a beginning. Someone began it and inst- installed it. The, there is an institutor of time. And that is the fact that time has a direction. That's why in quantum physics, quantum measurements are irreversible. You can't reverse quantum measurements because time has a direction. Quantum measuring is really not true measuring. True measurement is impossible for man and angels. Why not? I'm saying something, I'll say it again. You cannot truly measure anything. Time measurement is impossible for man and angels. Only God can truly measure something. Because he has the ability to stop, see time and motion apart. He can see motionlessness and he can see timelessness. And so again, why is it true that why is true measurement impossible? Because human and angels can only arrive at averages because we are inside of time. Being inside of time means that all we can do is average the motion and get a measurement based on that particular motion 
that we are averaging. That might not make any sense, but hopefully it will. To accomplish a perfect measurement that you have to be timeless. The theological implications is amazing here. To accomplish full measure, measure means that you are timeless. So that's the, again, the implications, theological implications of quantum measurement. But I digress. We will get into decoherence and coherence and prediction and postdiction. Eventually, everyone will love that particular. If there's a prediction, there's a prediction. There's all got to be a postdiction, right? If there is coherence, there has to be decoherence. Some would say incoherence. Anyway. Ultimately, singularity is required to install time and cause motion. Singularity, as you know, is assigned to black holes because they think black holes have infinity. They think they have singularity. They cannot. Singularity is essentially synonymous, synonymous with infinity. And infinity is attached to omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence. That one is as important. Many theologians immediately subtract God's goodness. They say he is not good because he is omniscient. It doesn't make sense, but that's what they say. And they think it makes sense. It comes back. It comes from the 1500s almost. Certainly the 1600s. But they subtract his goodness from his infinity. To repeat their thought process, <coughs> they conclude that knowing is causation. And our conception, uh, even the conceiving of it before you institute it, that conception of it implicates origination. So if, I, if he conceives something in his mind, and he did, then he, has, and then he has originated it, is what they will say. In other words, because Christ knows all things, he is responsible for everything that occurs. What is that a denial of? That's a denial of zero and infinity having coexistence. Uh, the thinking continues. It ultimately, they will say, his knowledge is the origin of pathogens and viruses and parasites and bacteriological infections and poisonous entities and evil and sin and blah, blah. That's what they will tell you. They have take his, taken his omnibenevolence away from him. He can only be omnibenevolent because he's omniscient, he's timeless, he is omnipresent, and he is omnipotent. That will make him omnibenevolent. And he says so. He is good. He is pure. And I hope you recognize that signing Christ to all of these evils and sins, that is the Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Accusation that Israel made, which is, as you know, that is Matthew 4 and Luke 4. That is why the testing... Ooh, there's a word that's going to come up a lot here in a minute. The testing of Christ is happening at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Mark 1. Genesis 3, 4, of course, announces all of this accusation, but it is repeated by the Israelites at Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And you see, remember those lectures, I brought 17, 1 through 7 to Matthew 4 and Luke 4. The charge that is made against the goodness of God is exactly what I have just represented in kind of a convoluted, chaotic way, which is my method. Now, wait for it here a bit. 
from Isaiah 14 to Ezekiel 28. Or it could be Ezekiel 28. You can make the case Ezekiel 28 is before Isaiah 14. I won't be offended. So I have Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. They get me to Genesis 3-4. I believe both of those occur before Genesis 3-4. So in other words... Ezekiel 28 tells me what occurred prior to the accusation that is presented to the woman by Satan in the garden at 3-4. So does Isaiah 14. So these heresies, these blasphemies, if you want to call them, this issue, they proceed, uh, they proceed. How do I put this? Let me put it better. This accusation is obviously heresy. God is not the originator, the author of evil. He has none of that in him. He says so. He is pure. So how did this happen, this accusation that is really rooted in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and exposed in Genesis 3-4 to humans, obviously exposed to the angelic realm prior to exposing it to Eve and the woman. I'm sorry, Adam and the woman. But I'm saying to you that this thread, this accusation, this heresy is in the Bible everywhere. It arises consistently through the Bible. Just, and it goes all the way through to Revelation. You can find it in Revelation until the restoration of all things comes. The eternal state, the glory of the new Jerusalem is established. All of those lectures, that lecture on the New Jerusalem, is telling you that that particular blasphemy that originates uh, to humanity in Genesis 3-4, but actually comes through Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that ends in Revelation. That accusation is finally ended. Therefore, as you read scripture and you're searching for the purpose of, I'm sorry, the person of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the living blood, prepare yourself for the themes that are Genesis 3, 4. Again, they flow from Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, Ezekiel 28, 14 through 19, Genesis 1, 2. They flow from there into Matthew 4. They go right to Matthew 4. They go through, you'll see them over and over again in the nation of Israel. They're often repeated. So you can find this exact op, uh, uh, accusation that God is, in fact, the one that produces evil. And he is responsible for it because he produced it. And he says, no, my benevolence and evil coexist. My omnibenevolence, my goodness and evil coexist. And I have none of it in me. The end of this evil, its reign, is described... In Revelation 20, 11, 15. And finding the ending has great value because if you can find the ending, if you know the ending, and this is a mathematical principle, if I know the solution to the problem, then I can work back and find the problem. Does that make any sense? If I know the ending, the circumstances of the containment of wickedness, notice he doesn't destroy wickedness. He does not annihilate it. He contains it with fire. I was talking to someone this week where I said he put a fire gate between humanity and the garden of, or the tree of life. 
Humanity couldn't get through the gate. That's a flaming sword. It's a door, if you wish. Well, I have flame in the uh, lake of flame. Duh. He contains people with fire. He contains wickedness with it. It also devours wickedness, too. But those, those folks, folks, the individuals that have rejected and will reject Christ with hatred that are in the lake of fire, they, uh, they will not cease to exist because they cannot. There is no annihilation. Again, annihilation comes from this belief that God is the origin of evil. I will, if every time I find somebody that's an annihilationist, all I have to do is ask them if they believe Christ conceived evil. And they will say, well, yeah. Almost every time. Anyway, finding the ending, knowing that the ending is the containment of wickedness in the lake of fire, that will allow for accuracy as to the origin of evil. If you start at the end, you're going to get back to the correct origin if you maintain that understanding of why it's contained and not annihilated. But you're still going to find, you're going to encounter a seeming unending parade of those who will insist that, the, uh, that since the Lord God Almighty created beings with the capacity to reject him and choose and embrace sinful lusts, this is culpability as to the origins of that lust. In other words... They'll say, why did he include the option of sin? He didn't have to, they will say. Again, animals have no accountability as to the rejection of Christ. Do animals have sinful issues? Oh, yeah. They do. But they are never in adversity. In other words, they have no judgment because they have no accountability because they will not reject Christ. They do not have the free will to do that. Who has the free will to reject Christ? Mankind and fallen angels. And therefore, they are subject to the lake of fire, the containment of their wickedness. And why is this so? Why is it that mankind and fallen angels are subject to the lake of fire? Easy answer. Because somehow it proves existence. Containment for eternity proves existence. How is that? Why is it that mankind, the fact that animals are not subject also proves existence? And that's because of the federal headship of Adam. So chew on that. Last week we went through Psalm 10, which outlines the issue wonderfully. Again, Psalm 10, Genesis 3-4. It presents the accusatory list, if you will, in, in Psalm 10-1 and the description of the wicked uh, rationalizations that flow from that accusational list. And you remember, I hope you remember Psalm 10-1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, is the question asked of God. It is asked of God in a way, why do you do this, God? Uh, because I want you to tell me, and so I can know. It's also used, why do you stand, stand afar off, O Lord, in an accusatory way? Why are you not interfering? I demand that you interfere. And the fact that you are not interfering means that you are complicit. And therefore, you are what? You are evil. They blame God for everything constantly. Why do you hide in times of evil? Psalm 10.1, which is the exact same thing. Uh, 
you can say that in a honoring way and you can say that in a condemnation or a condemnatory way. Um, why do the wicked renounce God is a wonderful question. Why do the wicked renounce God? Uh, Psalm 10, 13. Uh, he says in Psalm 10, 12, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Why do the wicked renounce God? What are they thinking? They have a reasoning, and you need to know the reasoning. I believe you need, the church needs to know the reasoning. Parents need to know, because at some point, your children are going to bring these questions back from whoever, whomever teaches them in whatever school you send them, Christian, non-Christian. I'm reluctant uh, to ask Christian Bible uh, uh, high school teachers what they believe on this issue. I don't want to know. My delusional obliviousness, ignorance, is blissful. But Psalm 10.13 says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of evil? Why do the wicked renounce God? O God, lift up your hand. How can you say to my soul, Psalm 11.1, Flee as a bird to your mountain. Because God does do that, doesn't he? He says to the Israelites, flee. When you see certain things, flee to the mountains. Why doesn't he just instantly protect them? He doesn't. Why not? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3 The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. Oh, there's an answer. Notice how Psalm 10 gave us an answer to all those questions. Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of evil? Why do the wicked renounce God? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The, the Lord tests the righteous. Psalms 11.4 So there, it appears that Psalm 11 Builds upon answers Psalm 10. Who would have thunk that? And this continuous one sentence book that the subsequent chapter would actually answer, reflect upon the previous. Biggest duh I could ever say. Why does the Lord test the righteous? What is he testing for? Immediately you should ask, how does his timelessness and his infinity fall into his agreement with his testing of the righteous? Because it does. Here's an example where he says, I am testing. Why does God do this? Does he test the wicked also? He does search the hearts and minds, he said. He is the one that searched the hearts and minds. What's he looking for? I asked that a while back. Do you remember that? Does he test the wicked? If so, what's the purpose of the test of the wicked? And what is the difference between the test of the righteous and the test of the wicked? And if he doesn't test them, why doesn't he test them? Don't they get to be tested? We have a lot of testing in our world today. Now, I suspect many of you listening, I hope, if anyone remains awake, many uh, are screaming, what about Job? What about this incredible mystery that is Job chapters 1, 2, and 3? Job chapters 1, 2, and 3 recounts the sons of God. That's Genesis 6. It's the same word. 
recounts that the sons of God, the angelic host, which in this case included Satan, so I got unfallen and I got fallen, they assemble. What's the obvious question? Why did they assemble? Well, it tells you. God and Satan presents himself to God. He's decided now is the time to present myself to God. What made him do that? He's not dumb. He has a plan. And all the angels are there. And God, omniscient, asks a question He of Satan. When God, omniscient God, asks a question, it's because he knows the answer. So who does he ask the question for? Certainly not himself. He asks, from where have you come? In other words, where have you been? It's quite similar to that asked of Adam. Where are you? Genesis 3, 9. And the Lord, still omniscient, duh, asked Satan another question. Have you considered my servant Job? Obviously, Satan has considered his servant, servant Job. And obviously, God knows that Satan has considered God's servant, Job. Why does he say it aloud? Who else is there? How many? How loud is his voice? So reset the circumstances. The angelic host has assembled. Satan is intending to attack Job in a manner similar to which he came for the woman and Adam. So I want you to note this Adam and Job relationship. We have a test, 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 test. God tests the righteous. Why? Very important question to answer. Satan's premise is identical as Genesis 3-4. It's identical. Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, Job has no free will. Free will can only be measured as hatred of God, is what Satan is saying. And he goes on to say, if God were to withdraw his blessings, Job would curse God to his face. And from there it goes. That's Job chapters 1, 2, and 3. So why does God, in this circumstance, permit Satan to strike Job? Because Satan obviously cannot strike Job without what? Being, getting a permit. It's much like the municipality of Anchorage when you want to build something. You have to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for their permission. But it's free. Job 1.12 is one of the great beholds in that particular chapter. Behold, he says. Not only does he permit Satan to do it, but there's a behold attached to it, which means there's an incredible treasure here. God allows Satan power to cause a wind to collapse the house where Job's sons and daughters are gathered, killing them all. Now, I have the position that it's obvious they are resurrected. That's the only solution to death is resurrection. There is no other solution. If you tell me, well, he gave them new sons and daughters, that's not a solution. The solution to death is resurrection. So, but God allows Satan power to cause a wind. And that wind collapses the house where Job's sons and daughters are, and they all were killed. And fire came from above and killed Job's flocks of sheep and killed all of Job's shepherds. So far, not a good day. Chaldeans came in three bands. Why three bands? Why not four bands? Why not two bands? Why not one band? What do we call them? The red-hot Chaldeans. But no, they have three bands. So think whatever bands you wish to pick. Stone, uh, rocks and cockroaches and what's another band that came out of England? I can't think of another one in my time. Rocks, obviously. 
have rocks that roll down a hill, and I have cockroaches, which is essentially a beetle. Just in case you're wondering. But the Chaldeans came in three bands, and they killed more servants, and they stole Job's camels. And the servants that come back to Job say, I, I am the one that escaped. I am the one that escaped. I, am the, I alone have escaped. And what's the result of all of that? All of that, what resulted? What did Job do? Job worshipped the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall remain there, or I shall return there. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how he responded, which was the exact opposite of the premise of Satan. That free will can only be measured as hatred of God. Free will obviously can be given as worship, can be seen as worship. Job did not charge the Lord with evil. Let me repeat it. Job did not charge the Lord with evil. Job 1.22. We will need to understand that. Because that is exactly what I'm trying to discuss here. Do not charge God with evil. If you have a view that charges God with evil, you are in trouble. Theologically. And we're going to need to understand the book of Job as an, at the elementary level in order to answer the questions that come up in Psalm 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Let's see how I'm doing. Oh, rut row. Psalm 10 is a six-chapter endeavor, 10 through 15. Okay. Where am I now? Where, where was I? Psalm 11, 5. The Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates that person. That's what he says, 11.5 of Psalm. So it's answering why he tests the righteous. Upon the wicked he will rain coal, fire, and brimstone. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, Psalm 11.7. Job did not assign evil to him. To repeat, what is the purpose of the testing of the righteous? For whom is the testing? Again, evaluate who's there. He is testing the, the righteous for whose sake? For the righteous' sake? Good answer. Who has assembled to watch the testing of Job? It tells you. Who assembled to watch the, the witness of the, who assembled to witness the testing of Adam? Who assembled to listen to Satan and Christ at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Mark 1? Why is it God that tests his people but is evil, Exodus 17, 1 through 7, to test God? Obviously, the intent, the purposes of the testing of God and the testing of the righteous are diametric. That would be this way. The assemblages of the fallen and unfallen angels cannot be set off to the sidelines when you're looking at these kinds of th questions. Whenever God and Satan are in confrontation, whether it's Matthew 4, Luke 4, Genesis 3, Job 1 through 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Revelation 19, 19. Revelation 19, 7 through 10, John 13, 26, 27, going fast, obviously. John 18, Matthew 26, 47 through 56. Whenever you see <coughs> Christ, Jesus God, God in the flesh, the invisible made visible. When you see him and Satan, expect that the angelic host is in attendance. Expect it. The entirety of it, unfallen and fallen. Think of it as... It's not a heavyweight fight because Satan is, is, one is infinite and the other is not infinite. It's not, it's not a fair fight. It never will be a fair fight. 
There is no reason to think that it could be in any way described as that. A chess match. I've done that a lot of times. Okay, Psalm 12. I've got to return to the text. I am not lost. HTRP. Psalm 12 carries more description of the thoughts of the wicked. Psalm 12.1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Notice the difference between the sons of men, the daughters of men, and the sons of God. Keep that straight. Genesis 6 is the sons of God and the daughters of men. Psalm 12.1. Help, Lord. For the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Obvious question. To what is the faithful faithful to? The ungodly are identified, so that's helpful. We can find out what the ungodly are saying and we can compare that to what the faithful do not say. Because that comes next. Again, isn't this a shock? All I have to do is keep reading and I can figure all this stuff out. The answers are given to me. The ungodly are identified. They speak idly, it says in Psalm 12, with everyone to their neighbors. They go from people to neighbor to neighbor. Oh, that's interesting. What do they say? Well, it says they have a double heart. They speak with a double heart, flattering lips. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, Psalm 12, 3. So whatever their flattering lips are, what are they saying to these people that are so flattering? What are they saying to them? Whatever they're saying, they're moving from neighbor to neighbor. Let me repeat that. The Lord will cut off their lips. He will stop them. Psalm 12.4 tells us what they say. With our tongue we shall prevail. Prevail over what? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That's what they say. Psalm 12.5. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Notice the wicked one who prowls, who exalts vileness among the sons of men are using speech and words as their weapon. That's what they're doing. They are certain, uh, surprisingly confident that they will prevail over something because of what they say. What comes out of their mouth, what they confess with their mouth. They're going to prevail over something. What is that something that they have to concern themselves with? Notice also they declare that their words are their words. Duh. In other words, their thoughts are their own. What are they saying there? That they can freely think. They can own their words, their thoughts. And they come to this conclusion. Who is the Lord over us? Who is Lord over us? It's a rhetorical question. It assumes that no one is Lord over them. However, someone is controlling them, which is the great irony here. Again, the position repeats itself, doesn't it? Freedom is revealed only by choosing evil. To which God responds, now I will arise. The timeless, omniscient one makes a time reference when he says now. So he's inserting himself into his time that he controls and can see and is inside of him. It isn't difficult to include uh, Revelation 13, 4 through 10 into Job 1 through 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Psalm 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. 
So let's read Revelation 13 while I barely have time. 4 through 10. So the beast, the dragon who has given authority to the beast, and, uh, and they, well, yeah, I should, yeah, four is good. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given, now I want you to think about Job 1 through 3 now. And he was given. Who gave it to him? A mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given. Authority to continue for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Notice how many things were given to the beast and Satan, the Satan man, if you will. The Satan man is given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. Again, words. Obviously, that's the weapon of choice, isn't it? Words. What he says is incredibly powerful somehow. That's Ezekiel 28:16. The abundance of your traffic. He's going from person to person to person. Psalm 10 through 15. The Satan man is given authority. He doesn't have authority. It has to be given to him. Who gives him authority to blaspheme God and God's tabernacle and to blaspheme all those who dwell in heaven? Who's dwelling in heaven at this particular time? Certainly, this would include the unfallen angels and the abducted bride. For certain. What is the blasphemy? What is the blasphemy? Oh, well, I think, obviously, that it is God is the author of evil that there is no freedom there is no existence all of the things that flow out of that if God is evil then nothing is true and God is pure and he's always true what does the Satan man say I, I'm saying to you that you I hope you can see I'm submitting this as best I can that Job chapters 1, 2 and 3 is, is given to us in Revelation 13:7. In other words, they, they conspire to tell us exactly what's happening in both places. The Satan man is given, granted the power to attack and overcome the saints who remain on the earth. Note that, lots of notes today. The Satan man needs permission from God. The key question, why does God grant him this permission? He did it with Job. It's got to be the same reason. Two questions here. Why does the Satan man request permission? Because he has to ask. He's got to ask for permission. And why does God grant or give it? By now, hopefully someone is apoplectically, try to say that again, screaming at, yelling at the computer screen or your phone, wherever you're listening by. Please, they're screaming, Revelation 3, 7 through 12. Revelation 3, 17 through 12, or 7 through 12. Okay, calm down. I'll read it. Let me read it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things say, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and he who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. 
See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name, have kept my word and have not denied my name. That name is Exodus 3.14, right? What is Exodus 3.14? It's an, it's an Elohim reference. It's the triune God reference. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogues of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. So, those who lie will come and worship before the feet of the church of Philadelphia. And to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. That goes back to you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Oh, isn't that interesting? What's the test testing for? Once again, I've given the answer. It's going to be a test on the entirety of the earth. I do it even though it brings me great dismay. I have to overcome my inclinations. And next week, we'll do quantum measurement and why God tests. Because it's kind of the same thing. Kind of. That's all I got.